Okay, um, I want to welcome you uh, to the presidential panel tonight and our Lifetime Achievement Award. And I want to introduce our uh, two discussants, as it were. That is uh, Charles Kimball, who will be uh, interviewing Diana Eck. Uh, Charles, as many of you know, is Presidential Professor of Religious Studies at the University of Oklahoma, where he's the director of the Religious Studies Program. If you ever get there, he will bring you to, without exaggerating, the best, probably the second best restaurant I've been to in terms of desserts. I'm a dessert person, and it's, it's great. So I'm going to invite him to my university so that he invites me back to his so I can go back and have that dessert. But in any case, uh, from 1996 to 2008, he served as chair of the Department of Religion and the Divinity School at Wake Forest University in Winston-Salem. He's a frequent lecturer in universities and church-related senators, as well as an expert and analyst on the Middle East, Islam, Jewish-Christian, uh, sorry, Jewish-Christian-Muslim relations, and the intersection of religion and politics in the U.S. Author of five books, among them the award-winning When Religion Becomes Evil, which publishes weekly named one of the top 15 books on religion that year. God, how I envy him. Um, and then, uh, among his other books, are Striving Together, A Way Forward in Christian-Muslim Relations, Religion, Politics, and Oil, The Volatile Mix in the Middle East, and The Angle of Vision, Christians, and the Middle East. As one of the people here in the audience said to me coming over, because I was saying I had to get here in time to introduce Diana, he said, why? Everybody knows who she is. But <laughs> I will at least say something brief about her. Diana Eck is Professor of Comparative Religion and Indian Studies, and Frederick Wortham, Professor of Law and Psychiatry in Society at Harvard University. Since 1991, she's directed the Pluralism Project, which explores and interprets the religious dimensions of America's new immigration, the growth of Hindu, Buddhist, Sikh, Jain, and Zoroastrian communities in the US, and the new issues of religious pluralism and American civil society. Her research has had a dual focus, India and America. And to that end, she has published extensively, including two highly regarded books, Banaras, City of Light and Darshan, Seeing the Divine Image in India. Random House published her most recent work, India, a Sacred Geography, in 2012. Her 1993 book, Encountering God, a Spiritual Journey from Bozeman to Banaras, which I highly recommend, since I actually happen to have read it. I know many of you are in that situation where we buy all of these books but you don't have time to read a book because you're writing a book. Uh, but it's really a great read. Um, it won the 1994 Meltker Book Award of the Unitarian Universalist Association and the 1995 Louisville, sorry about this, but I'm going to slur this last name, Graumeyer Book Award in Religion. Former president of the AAR, 2005-2006, she served as a member of the State Department's Advisory Committee on Religious Freedom Abroad, 1998, she received the National Humanities Medal from President Clinton and the National Endowment for the Humanities for her work on American religious pluralism. Let the games begin. Hey. <laughs> well, this is uh, great fun for me. Diane and I first met in 1975 when I entered the doctoral program that uh, she was in the last phases of, and so we've had a lot of opportunities to uh, interact, work together in different settings. And that's actually, uh, is that echoing as loud to you as it is to me? 
Does it sound okay? Okay, just echoing up here. Um, we've had a number of opportunities to work together, and so, uh, like many others who are here, I think, know a lot about various phases of your life's work, your vocation as an academic, but also engaging the community and uh, the interfaith dialogue and activities through the councils of churches. There are a whole lot of things, and I want to touch on uh, several of those uh, in the course of our time together. Uh, let's begin just with uh, the beginning. Uh, you're from Montana, and I think that's important. Yeah, I'd, I'd say Montana is a pretty good place to begin. Um, I always talk about Montana when I introduce myself to students because it does sort of define a bit of geography that mattered a lot to me and that continues to. I grew up in the Southwest in the Rocky Mountains in the Gallatin Valley, Bozeman. Um, you know, my dad was an architect and had a great sensibility for the land and space and knew the names of all the mountains and rivers. And my mom was an activist and moved from being in church affairs to the League of Women Voters to calling a constitutional convention for the state of Montana to being a, uh, a state senator for 25 years. And still, when I go home, she's sitting there with the precinct books over her lap as she's uh, going through every available Democrat in the state. So, um, it, you know, this made a difference to me. And that community in Bozeman is still a community that I feel very much a part of. And that is still home. I think it shaped a lot of what I got interested in. My very first uh, uh, engagements were with the kids in the Methodist Church when the governor tried to cancel the United Nations Day. But it also meant, I mean, the, the Methodist piece is another piece there because I did grow up in the Methodist Church in Bozeman and gradually in the state of Montana and gradually became an officer of the National uh, Methodist Youth Fellowship. And so that's sort of the beginnings here. And when I think about the beginning of my own uh, sort of academic work, when I went east, so to speak, to Smith College, um, my talk first about that stop. A bit because I think you went via Washington D.C. Yeah, right? I went. I went to Smith College via the March on Washington, where I went with the, my colleagues from the Methodist Youth Fellowship and the Methodist Student Movement. We drove all night from some meeting that we were having in uh, Kenyon College, uh, got to the march. Uh, we had to dress up nice. You're supposed to dress as if you're going to church, you know. I wore my shoes as if I were going to church. And I, if you ever see the pictures of the people with their feet in the, in, the, uh, in the reflection pool, that was probably me among them. Um, and then we got back in the car and drove all night back. So this was really, you know, it, there was a sense in which my own vocation as a scholar was also really shaped by, uh, by social activism. In those days, it was the civil rights movement, to be sure. But, um, but that became a piece of it. And then you get to Smith College as an undergraduate, come all the way east, and that was uh, part of what opened the door to India for you, right? Well, I wouldn't say Smith exactly opened the door to India, but it was at Smith College that I got interested in a lot of other things. Uh, and uh, it was that period when we were really very deeply engaged in Vietnam. And I kind of wanted to go abroad to study. I'd never been anywhere in Europe. And I um, 
I decided what I really wanted to do was go to what we then called the third world. I don't know if we still do that. But, um, but I looked for programs. I couldn't find them. But I did find one that the University of Wisconsin sponsored in India. And so it was a serendipity of a snowy January when I saw it on a bulletin board and thought, well, yeah, maybe I could do that. It wasn't exactly as far east as Vietnam in Asia, but it was, uh, it was a realization, I think, on my part that, that our country was very deeply engaged in a part of the world that we knew almost nothing about, um, as we have continued to be in other eras mm. in more recent times. And so that was sort of a stimulated the, the decision to go and learn a bit of Hindi and spend a year at Benares Hindu University. Well, and obviously the, that connection with India is carried through the rest of your life uh, with not only the Bozeman to Benares book and the Kashi book, but also your most recent book yeah. as well mm -hmm. in the center point. How did you get then on to Harvard in the uh, doctoral program out of undergraduate work? Well, I, that, um, it was true. When I, I spent that year in Benares, real, that first year, really very much in a kind of inner dialogue with everything I was experiencing. Because, hey, I, I was a Methodist from Montana. We had nothing more than a, um, you know, a, a plain cross in our church, <laughs> nothing else. And here were, you know, so many gods, so many images, um, so much faith, really, that was part of living in a place that was so much a vibrant uh, center of religious faith. So I think that was what really turned me to the study of religion. And I had thought a bit about maybe I was really more interested in politics, but in India, you have to be a real aficionado to be interested in politics. It is so uh, such a mess, but uh, and it's you know not as penetrable really uh, as uh, as you might think. But but to get interested in in the religious life was re really grabbed me, and so you know my first step was really to apply to go to England and study at the School of Oriental and African Studies as a, a Fulbright Scholar. I mean, you, you know, you just wanted to do a step at a time, and that was the next step mm -hmm. uh, after Smith. And that, too, was a really enlightening experience, a different form of pedagogy, a tutorial system, uh, uh, you know, the old sort of smoky common rooms of the, of the, of the School of Oriental and African Studies. Um, just, I, I was there this past summer because I, I got an honorary degree, which is actually, so as is even more interesting now than it was then. I mean, just a, a, a flourishing, uh, energetic place with not only, you know, smoky common rooms, but graffiti all over the common rooms with, with uh, a, a lot of political and, and uh, social engagement. But then, um, you know, it was that year I was in London that uh, that Robert Kennedy and Martin Luther King were shot. Um, we're, we're sort of observing all of those, uh, you know, 50th anniversary, and that will come up in due course. But um, I just felt I needed to be at home, so I came back to to the states, came to Cambridge, and was really interested in 
entering a program in the study of religion. Well, the program that you were in, that I was in, and a few other people who were here went through was at, uh, a distinctive one, yeah, an sure experimental was. one in a way. Uh, the Center for the Study of World Religions talk about that and how, but both what you experienced, but also how that shaped you as a scholar and the kind of questions that you've yeah. pursued subsequently and so forth. Well, Charlie, you know, th this was such a, a great experience. The Center for the Study of World Religions in the 70s, and there are people here who were there, Mary McGee. Were you there in the 70s or a little later? A little later. But I mean, it really was a community of scholars. And um, it included Wilfred Cantwell Smith, who lived there, who was such an influence on both of our lives, academically and personally. Um, John Carmen, who lived there. Uh, Jaralalo Mehta, who lived there with his wife, uh, visiting scholars from Sri Lanka and from uh, Pakistan. I mean, th this was an extraordinary community in which all of us who were graduate students in that uh, comparative study of religion programs also lived there. So it really was a living community in which um, that sense that Wilfred sometimes talked about, about you know, when you really want to know something about, an, about another religious tradition, don't just read the books, but talk to people. I mean, it's this sort of coffee shop in Lahore uh, methodology. And, um, and that was brought to bear there. It was very much a community of conversation that included colloquia every Wednesday night. That no, they were not on your study card or your transcript or anything. They were just that you would never miss them. Hmm. And it was just a great experience. And I think there were two things about that. One was simply the influence of Wilfred Cantwell Smith, whom I think is influential to many in this audience, who sort of taught a different way of thinking about the study of religion, that really was not about religious systems, but about people, and uh, coming to understand what the world looked like from their vantage point, um, what, what it meant to be a Hindu, living one's life, and and growing old and dying one's death. Um, and, and then who also was just rigorously uh, investigative of the vocabulary that we use to study religion, including religion, uh, faith, scripture, uh, belief, all of these terms that, uh, you know, this was before they talked about deconstructionism, but he, and he was a, a very humanistic deconstructionist, but he enabled us to see the ways in which our own language uh, shapes what we see and to um, invite us to think about a, um, a, a, an intersection of vocabularies that we could only do together. So there were those seminars in which, you know, we were talking about faith, but I was writing my paper on Shraddha and other people were writing on pistis, and, and uh, people were bringing their knowledge from different uh, communities of discourse together. And he was just a master at doing this. He was so, um, so good. And he was sympathetic to the sorts of things that you and I were also engaged in. I mean, when you went off to Iran, for example, with that first delegation of American pastors who went to see if they could talk to the Ayatollah and maybe meet with the, with the uh, folks who were 
at that point still prisoners in the embassy. I mean, that was something he supported. I know this from Charlie, because he, Wilfred said, don't worry about your sections. I'll take your section discussions when you're away. I mean, but, but he, he believed that what the sort of thing that you were doing was really, really useful and that scholarship shouldn't just be about what you do in the library or in the seminars, but should point your heart toward the world. Yeah, that's, uh, we could talk a long time about the center, but the, mm -hmm. I think that unique experiment of being both a very rigorous academic center, yeah. but also a place where you were doing your laundry down in the yeah. basement next that's to right. friends from India and from mm -hmm. Japan, and. Mm -hmm. I often, I, when I try to describe it to people, I say it's hard to encapsulate, but put it this way, my first year there, my next door neighbor was the high priest of Zoroastrianism. Yeah. I didn't <laughs> realize you could take a sabbatical if you were the top guy in Zoroastrianism, <laughs> right. but apparently you can. So, yeah. uh, but it was that kind of, those mm -hmm. kinds of folks from all over the world and the graduate students yeah. that we engaged with as you read the paper or mm -hmm. had picnics with their kids out back. Yeah. and at the same time engaged in the, in the seminars. And so you went immediately uh, on to the faculty at Harvard, right? From, mm, or was sort of, yeah. It seemed I immediate mean, to me. Well, it seemed immediate. I mean, this was an era in which Harvard didn't even have an a undergraduate major in religion. And yet there were, you know, were a lot of people there who were very uh, engaged in the academic study of religion and taught undergraduates. Um, and you know, Krista Stendhal was dean of the Divinity School and taught huge New Testament classes that included divinity students, but also undergraduates. And Wilfred Cantwell Smith's course, uh, you know, was pretty foundational. And there were people like uh, Zeph Stewart, who was in the classics, and uh, and John Rosenfield in Buddhist art. So there were a lot of people. But um, in order to major in religion, you had to make it a special concentration. This seemed ridiculous, given the fact that there, every uh, liberal arts school on the East Coast and throughout the country was developing religion majors. So it was just really at that time that uh, Bill Graham first and then, uh, then I were, uh, in, became engaged in developing a program of study for uh, undergraduates. So it was fortuitous. It was the right place at the right time. I guess I'd say that. And uh, as you began to teach, uh, and then write, publish, uh, talk about your early efforts as a, a young scholar. Because it's, oh. uh, it's a little unusual, at least in the experience of some of us, to, uh, for people to become assistant professors at Harvard and then get tenure. Um, well, I, mean, I started as a teaching fellow, come on. Well, <laughs> but, right. <laughs> That's right. So it's even more It unusual. is unusual. And you know, um, I think... Uh, so you obviously have to produce yeah. at several levels. There are a yeah. lot of people who yeah. have been great teachers and run, essentially run programs, but then would go somewhere else after to get tenure well, and so forth. Let me say this. I mean, my first book was on Benares City of Light, which really uh, came out of my doctoral thesis, which most of my advisors thought was uh, too big for a doctoral thesis, and it was, of course. But, um, but it is a time when you have the most time to put into field research. And then I went back uh, for a few summers after that. So when I published, when I had Banara City of Light together, um, then the question of publishing came up. And this is, um, 
this is a touchy business because I wasn't sure who should publish my book. I went into the bookstore, I remember very well, the Harvard bookstore, and I started thumbing through books that I really loved. And at that point, one was um, a, a book on Vienna by Karl Shorsky. And you know, it had lovely photographs and colored photographs and maps, and it's called Fin de siècle Vienna. I thought, I like this book. I'd like that publisher to publish my book. And I sent it to Knopf. <laughs> and it sort of went over the transom and landed on the desk of a wonderful woman, Toinette Lippi, who loved it. And even though Knopf doesn't publish things that are even slightly scholarly like this, um, that it's a trade publisher, um, they took it. So with that, then it also got reviewed. And it got reviewed in the United States and in England and in India as well. And um, I can't say it was ever a bestseller, but it's still in print. I mean, in one, you know, one iteration after another. But that set a, um, a trajectory for, I mean, I think that they weren't really sure what to make of a trade book. John at probably Harvard, has at this. At Harvard, you mean? Yeah, at Harvard, mm -hmm. you know, and you've published with trade publishers as well. Um, I think it's, it is a signal of one's interest in communicating uh, outside the academy in sort of intelligent language that, that is, you know, written. I sort of wrote that book for a man who was a classicist, um, for Zeph Stewart. He said, write in a way that is intelligible to someone who is not quite in your field, but, you know, in just another field adjacently. And, um, and I think it's good advice. I mean, Karen was talking about that this morning, about trying to build that bridge of communication to a wider audience. And I hate to say it in the context of the Academy, but I have never published a peer-reviewed book. And you miss that. You miss the fact that you don't have people on board who have had a really good critical look at it. But um, Knopf doesn't do that. Beacon does a little bit, maybe, or uh, Random House, not at all. I mean, it's up to me to do the, have you know my peers read it, but uh, I mean that's a that's a particular issue I think that the academy has that we may want to look at a little more carefully. Yeah, we'll come back around to that. Yeah, a little bit more I think. Mm -hmm. So uh, first book there, the talk about the continuing sort of trajectory of your research, yeah. academic inquiry, mm -hmm. uh, next books. I know during the 80s, and I want to talk about mm -hmm. your involvement, particularly with the World Council, yeah. National Council, that the Methodist strain continues there as a yep. representative of that uh, major denomination, but uh, very actively involved. We worked together a lot. We you did. were for mm -hmm. eight years the mm -hmm. chair of the, the World Council of Churches Dialogue subunit, yeah. and we're all over the world. Well, and that was actually, uh, you know, again, something that came about by virtue of having a mentor, and all of you have people who could use this kind of mentorship. Someone who opens a door for you, and you didn't really know that you wanted to walk through that door. But for me, that was Krista Stendhal, um, who you know, gave my name to the people at the World Council of Churches who were having a theological cons consultation in Thailand about uh, Christians in dialogue, in community, with people of other faiths. And you know, that came out of the blue to me, but, uh, but it was something that, you know, that Krista had actually opened in a way that, um, that mattered. And once I 
walked through that door, I got really engaged because I had grown up um, very much in a Christian church. I had I'd taken a kind of long detour into my academic work, but it was still uh, still something that was really vibrant and vital to me. And I discovered a lot. And I will say that those years, uh, as a member and then moderator of a working group on dialogue with people of living faiths and ideologies, included 25 people from all over the world who were Catholic and Orthodox and, uh, and Quaker and every conceivable uh, Protestant denomination. Uh, well, not everyone, because there are only 25 of us, but still. I mean, that was a real, that was my theological education, actually. Mm. I'd never really taken a course in theology. I, I, I still haven't. I mean, um, but I know that I, um, that I think theologically. And, uh, and I discovered how in, uh, you know, in sort of school of uh, uh, training with Orthodox theologians who have very different views, but some of them very exciting views about the, uh, the world of faiths that that um, we all inhabit. So th that was important to me. And it did mean that I, and you, because you came in various, in working with uh, Muslim communities and Muslim theologians, um, I mean, we met people in, you know, who were thinking about these matters, who were Buddhist and Hindu and Muslim and Jewish, and, um, and we also undertook study projects. Like I remember doing several that were about theological education in a multi-faith society. And we did one in in uh, in Malaysia and another one in in Indonesia. And we met in Mauritius and all of these multi-faith societies that were so interesting. And <laughs> then what really happened was that by the end of the '80s. My own society had become a multi-faith yeah, society, and I had t totally missed it that's where <laughs> along I wanted, the way. I wanted to go, <laughs> that's where I wanted to go next, so yeah. please. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that was, it was sort of coming back and beginning to teach courses on diversity and dialogue and world religions that um, I discovered over a period of time from about, it was really a window from about 1988 till 1993, when the demography of my classes began to change. And it was no longer about the so-called other. I mean, we were all other to one another at that point. And there were Hindu students who had gone to summer camp in the Poconos and Muslim students from Chicago and uh, Sikh students. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, it was the result of the new immigration that I hadn't really followed very carefully along the way. And suddenly um, the university was different Harvard College was much better than it ever had been before because of that uh, diversity. It made teaching different, and it also spurred me into wanting to learn more about our own country. I remember when you were pondering all of that and starting to get organized for what became the Pluralism Project, uh, yeah. and that was, and it continues to be, yeah. uh, an incredibly rich, uh, process that, again, doesn't quite fit the a traditional academic mold in terms of what one does and uh, gets counted or whatever. But yeah. uh, talk about the inspiration and what it took to get that off the ground and sort of what its history has been over 20-some years now. Well, 
in some ways, distinctively American ways that uh, nonprofit religious organizations go about working. Talk a little bit about the sort of evolution of the way the data was gathered and presented. I remember when the CD-ROM program came yeah. out, mm -hmm. uh, and of course your book, A New Religious America, which mm -hmm. sort of caught, gave the background, but gave a, a picture of where we are right mm -hmm. now, and it's been a few more years since that. Yeah. And now it's all moved online. It's not all uh, moved online, and that's a good thing. I mean, I thought we were very you know, upfront when my students persuaded me that we should try to get some money and do a CD-ROM to predict the you know, multimedia voices, call to prayer, budgeons, um, people. If you haven't seen it or heard it, uh, James Taylor does the call to prayer, and it's very cool. No, no, it's not. No, uh, I'm not Cat, James Taylor. Cat, Cat, Cat Stevens, Cat sorry. Stevens yes. does the call Still to Still very cool. Still cool. Yes, Cat Stevens. Um, but, Yusuf, uh, yes. Yeah. I mean, it, it, you know, it's a very, very useful resource. And, you know, it has timelines and histories and sort of both of general history of a, you know, evolution of a religious tradition, but especially in America. And, um, and you know, it was just a wonderful and interesting project that involved graduate students, mainly div school students, undergraduates, um, people who knew the technology and you know, became designers for it. And then within a few years, as these things happened, CD-ROM technology became uh, a dinosaur, you know. And so how to make this available in a very widely uh, usable way on the web and for free. I mean, you don't have to log in and buy anything, but it is thousands of pages and resources uh, I think probably the most valuable part is the third part about encountering religious diversity in mm -hmm. America because that encounter is an everyday encounter. It includes issues that take place in the public schools and uh, county commission meetings when you know, the Wiccan asks if she can say the invocation and everybody uh, has a fit. I mean, these are, the, these are real issues that we can talk about and that uh, you know, can be documented and you can keep this sort of briefcase, this document case of online resources that are present there. And it's much more vital now. So you should go www.pluralism.org, but uh, on common ground is right on the top band as of August. Well, let, me, let me kind of build on that and circle back to one of the things you were talking about because this is, again, I mean, it's a non-traditional kind of research and publication in the yeah. sense of uh, it would be uh, difficult perhaps for many people who are on tenure track to be pursuing something like that. Uh, mm -hmm. But it's enormously valuable as you've been talking about, and I want to talk too about your new book, India, and uh, this kind of continuing lifetime exploration that's coming together in a beautiful way in this book. But there are many different components here from your academic work, the church-related work, mm -hmm. the engagement with people at the center, mm -hmm. uh, publications, venturing off and sort of following your instinct with, you know, I don't know enough about what's going on in my classroom and all around me. And so um, how do you, what, what themes or threads do you see running through and how, how does that connect? I mean, you're getting a Lifetime mm -hmm. Achievement Award 
which is a wonderful it thing. I didn't realize it was an but, award. I thought it was well, a conversation. But anyway, I've got okay. James Taylor doing the call to prayer. So what do I know? But, yeah. Uh, the when you when you engage younger scholars, people who are starting out um, and facing whatever obstacles they're facing when they can get a job. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yours is not a kind of track that would be easy to follow or even predict. Um, yeah, I mean, so there are a lot of sort of boundaries that some people want to erect between people who are academic scholars and people who have a theological interest in another context. You know, I mean, Encountering God is just plain a, a book that comes out of my theological interest, my, my interest in in uh, how people negotiate difference of faith from their own standpoint. Uh, Benara City of Light is not really that, but, um, and I think one can do all of those things. I don't think, I mean, I would say this, I think uh, I wrote a piece once on, um, uh, it was called Dialogue and Method in the Study of Religion that says we really have to, one of the real educational things is to discover our own voice. And our own voice is not just one voice, it's the voice of someone who is engaged with other scholars in the academic enterprise and arguing about uh, Puranas and, and Indian epics. It's also the voice of someone who's engaged with people in their own religious community and uh, undertaking a different argument. And it's also the voice of someone who's engaged with the, the wider American citizenship argument that uh, you know is still more or less presuming that there's a kind of uh, dominant Christianity in America, which there is in some ways, but as citizens, we have yet another kind of argument to undertake. I think all of those are important, and I don't know how to say to younger scholars what, you know, what's a good track to take. All I can really say is that we don't have any idea what the shape of teaching and scholarship is going to look like in five or 10 years anyway. I mean, in, in my university, there's a lot of discussion about what online publication looks like. Online publication and uh, efforts online are, have a, a great deal of scholarly credibility. Not necessarily your own personal blog, but whatever. Um, you know, people are undertaking uh, edX or Harvard X or, you know, these big sort of worldwide courses. MOOCs. Uh, mm -hmm. MOOCs. I mean, all of that is, uh, is it's sort of the CD-ROM of these days, you know, and the next step, and the next step, that, that uh, our media is evolving so quickly that I think people simply need to follow their passion. You do have to pay your dues a little bit along the line. Now, when I published Benares, it was, I know, it was, it was many of my sort of administrators in the university thought it maybe was too much a popular book. It wasn't that popular, really, but <laughs> uh, anyway, it wasn't that easy to read. I don't. But then I did publish in each an article in each of the journals I felt I needed to publish something in. But I, you know, I have not wanted to pursue that track of publishing only within my own sort of scholarly community of discourse. And it's ironic to me that most people in the United States who invite me to do something or speak or this or that, they don't have any idea I do anything about India. Mm. They think of me as someone who studies America. And I do, but I, I 
began, I began studying America because I had to, um, and because it became infinitely fascinating to me. And I think people, most people in this room probably realize that you study and teach many things that you never learned about when you were, uh, uh, you know, uh, in graduate school. And that's just, that's good. You're, you're telling one of the trade secrets here. Yeah, so, uh, <laughs> probably. <laughs> you mentioned uh, fighting and struggling with uh, various institutions. Uh, the Methodist Church, you still have an ongoing relationship with the Methodist Church? And oh yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm still, you know, the Methodists still want me to be their, you know, their representative as I, I've been the chair of the National Council of Churches um, Commission on Interreligious Relations. Um, I probably would still continue to be the chair of that, except that nobody knows if there is going to be a National Council of Churches uh, that has a commission. They're reorganizing the whole uh, council. But no, Methodists want me in that respect. Um, but on the other hand, since I also happen to be married to my beloved Dorothy, uh, they don't want me to be, uh, they wouldn't want me to be a clergy person or a bishop. I, I often delight in telling Methodists that it was a lot easier for uh, a gay woman to become a professor at Harvard than to become an ordained person in the United Methodist Church, which is true. Uh, that was just not the, the context that I decided to you know, have my battles in. But, um, but I think this is true of any religious community. I mean, there are, there's no community so small that they're not arguing with each other. And we Methodists, I mean, the Zoroastrians are a good example. You know, they're, they're diminishing year upon year and they still have their um, intra-Zoroastrian arguments. So. Um, the other thing I would say coming out of that um, sort of going back to our days at the Center for the Study of World Religion. It's still a very wonderful place, by the way. It's just a different place. It's kind of a place that does a lot of programs, and there are a few people who live there. And it is true that Harvard Divinity School has become much more multi-religious over the course. I mean, you can do a Buddhist ministry program there. There are Buddhist students, Islamic uh, people who are Muslims, uh, a lot of South Asian students and Hindus. Um, for me, though, I think the other sort of continuing thread is that I really love the context in which um, the tree of learning and the tree of life grow together. And they're, you know, a, a community of living and learning. And I love that about the Center for the Study of World Religions. And it is the very reason that, uh, that I stay engaged, and I, I've been doing it for 14 years now, as housemaster of one of the Harvard's 12 uh, undergraduate houses or colleges. We have 450 students who live there through their uh, sophomore, junior, and senior years. And it is, um, it is a community of tremendous diversity, uh, religious diversity, ethnic diversity, um, gender identity issues. And to it's just an incredible privilege to live with students, graduate student tutors, members of the faculty who are part of that, um, and who you know, eat breakfast together and lunch and dinner and laundry and you know, 
it, it, it's a, a context of learning that I cherish, and it's partly because I think most of my own learning has been, um, you know, the coffee shop in Lahore, really. It's been those kinds of conversations that matter immensely to me. Mm. Talk about your newest book. This is uh, <clears throat> the product of yeah. a lifetime. My of newest how and many oldest times, book. <laughs> and how many times have you been to India and no, sort of... I don't of, have any idea. This, but this it, book looks yeah. like it was written in two, two years plus 30, or yeah, 30 yeah, years something plus like two that. or something. I, I mean, that book began with Banaras City of Light and began with the realization that, frankly, I, every place I stopped there, every little place along the river, every temple, was linked to somewhere else in India. And there was a kind of condensation of Indian geography in this holy place, but also a network of pilgrimages that um, led to lots of other places. And that this wasn't sort of the great center that I thought it was when I started, but one of a multitude of places that were linked together by myth and by um, by duplication and by uh, by the tracks of pilgrims. And so I started exploring those. And, uh, you know, I, I went to the headwaters of five of the seven sacred rivers of India and along those rivers and to most of the Jyotirlingas, the places that are Shiva's great uh, manifestations of light and to lots of the places associated with the goddess and basically to learn what I could learn and most everything I've learned about, about the Hindu tradition I've learned on the ground, really. Um, how these networks of pilgrimage places have really shaped uh, a sense of belonging that you couldn't really call nationhood because this was hundreds of years before we started thinking about the nation state in the modern way, but that have shaped a sense of uh, belonging in that, in that um, piece of the world that is really remarkable. So it is a book about India, but about India that begins with uh, the sense of sacred geography. And um, it's, it's been a trip. <laughs> I've traveled tens of thousands of miles in lots of different forms of vehicular transportation yeah. and on foot. And um, those have been some of the happiest and most therapeutic and most uh, learning uh, months and years, I guess, of my life. So it's in there somewhere, and it, the book is finished, but the research is endless. Um, it, it is a, uh, it's a wonderful and powerful book, and it, it's so chock full of not only great information and linking things in ways that at least as someone who teaches world religions but is not a specialist in the Hindu tradition, there are all kinds of things that came to life in a different way mm. for me uh, that, that uh, I hope it gets a very wide readership because it, it, you really feel a lifetime of learning and the aha moments that you've had over decades mm -hmm. uh, captured very nicely. It, um you know, it's very, it was very gratifying to go to India last January. Um, I had two big 
gigs in India. One was um, to go with an interdisciplinary, really interdisciplinary Harvard team that I put together with uh, Rahul Mehrotra at the School of Design and with people from the School of Public Health and Engineering and to go and study um, the Kumbh Mela at Allahabad where you know, there were just you know, 10, 12 million people there at the same time. Um, and we prepared for that for a whole semester and did what I think was just a really uh, innovative interdisciplinary study of that great pilgrimage um, at the juncture of the Ganges and the Yamuna rivers takes place every 12 years. And then shortly after that, I went to the Jaipur Literature Festival. And that was its own kind of mela, sort of uh, very, very crowded and lots of people and lots of authors and whatnot. But to see the kind of reception that this book had in India was really gratifying. I mean, there is a way in which one writes a book hoping to explicate something that really matters to the people about whom you're writing. And I felt that. And I felt it, I felt it in a different way when, when I was given an award for Benares City of Light um, by a group of basically Hindu intellectuals in Calcutta and Benares who kept giving speeches in Hindi. And I, I, I got almost everything, I think, but uh, saying they couldn't imagine that this had been written by someone who was not a Hindu. And what did it mean? I mean, this was, I mean, this is the humanistic em enterprise in a way, to try to understand what you were talking about this morning, Karin, to try to get into the context of something so that you really can shed light on something uh, that is not necessarily part of your own world, but that becomes part of your own world and that becomes illumining for the people about whom you're writing. Um, so I think neither this book nor uh, Benares would have been written in quite the same way by anyone who was a Hindu scholar. I don't think so. Mm. But, um, but they've been appreciated by them. Mm -hmm. Well, you're not through yet. And no, so, uh, not quite. Uh, what are you working on now? What, are there other new ventures that you're pursuing, or are you going to continue sort of doing the things you're doing now? Well, I don't know exactly. I mean, there, there's one venture that I'm definitely in the midst of working on, and that is um, uh, uh, three years ago, I guess it must have been, I was invited to do the Gifford Lectures in Edinburgh. And I entitled these six lectures, The Age of Pluralism and divided them up in ways that uh, were dealt with the importance of pluralism uh, for our world, for individual countries in our world, for religious communities, for local communities, and for our inner world as well. So it is a sort of broad treatment of this age, this time in which we live, as being uh, the age of pluralism. Now, I'm not trying to just say it's not the secular age, which is what Charles Taylor wrote about, and I can't even understand such a big book. But, um, but, it, uh, but I don't think it is the secular age these days. I think it really is the age in which 
um, no matter where you are, the, the encounter with people who are different, who are different ethnically, religiously, um, in so many ways, requires that we engage in a different way. And so I think what I call pluralism, that, uh, that engagement uh, to create something of a common society, of a society in which our creativity is brought together, uh, that really is on the plate of, uh, of people all over the world. And you know, it may be a little different in the US than it is in Indonesia or uh, in France, but these are the issues that we wrestle with. So eventually that will get published too. Are there other things that we haven't talked about that are part of the mix in terms of, as you look back over the last well, five decades now? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, there are a lot of things that are part of the mix, I think. Um, I, there was a quite a interesting sort of six-year period in my life when Dorothy and I lived with Joan and Eric Erickson in a common household. We were in our 40s, Joan and Eric were in their 80s, and we learned a lot about the life cycle from them. And I think, um, you know, they, they became, well, Eric became older. I'm not sure Joan ever became older. She, she was sort of eternally young and used to say, oh, to be 75 again or something. <laughs> Uh, something we'd all like to be able to say. But that was a very important uh, time uh, as a relatively young person, as I was in my 40s, um, to, to begin thinking about the, uh, the, well, what they call the life cycle. Uh, the fact that we do live in the kind of cogwheeling of generations. Um, and they wanted to live with us because they didn't want to live only with people in their own age group. And I think there's something uh, very creative in what they did, and we haven't quite picked up on it, but I kind of would like to, at some point, to think about uh, this whole notion of uh, intergenerational learning. Because now I'm sort of getting up into the uh, reaches of the generations that looks to my students in Lowell House as if I'm their grandmother, and I might be actually. Um, but but the the uh, sort of mutual respect and the ability to learn from each other is something that uh, I don't know if it's going to make its way into anything that I write, but it will make its way into the rest of my life. Hmm. We have uh, reached the end of our appointed time, and I'd like for all of us to join together in expressing our thanks to Diane.